Welcome, welcome to this uh, April edition of Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air is, of course, the uh, radio program and podcast where we talk about left politics and architecture. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we are still under uh, home orders, stay-at-home orders uh, here in the state of Illinois. So I'm recording from the home studio, very much so in my pajamas um, from Zoom USA. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be chatting about um, the kind of democratization, municipalization efforts of the electric grid in Chicago, uh, even if you're listening to this uh, episode from outside the city limits, anywhere else in the country, I think um, what's going on here is certainly uh, instructive and has bigger repercussions um, uh, and, and bigger lessons for, for, for all of us, really. Um, so stay tuned for that. But first, uh, an item of housekeeping. Um, many of, uh, of you listeners um, will have probably heard the, the pretty unfortunate news that um, uh, architecture, uh, architect Michael Sorkin um, passed away in New York City from complications arising from coronavirus um, in, in the last few weeks. Um, and so obviously that's a huge blow. Uh, to our our listeners, um, we wouldn't really be able to have a conversation about left politics and architecture uh, in this country without Michael. Um, it's it's um, <laughs> very selfishly sad that we didn't get him on the show, um, but but um, he was a comrade, and uh, we are collecting remembrances for him um, for the show. So uh, please send those in to buildingsonair at gmail.com. You can send in a little audio clip. Uh, you can write something and I'll read it off. Um, we'll be collecting those um, un until sort of, uh, I think the second week of April. Um, so please, if Michael touched your life in any way, even if you didn't know him personally, um, you know, please, please, please um, um, share. Um, Anyway, the fight continues. Uh, I'm, I'm positive Michael would have it no other way. And so let's talk about um, this facet of, of, our, of our struggle, of our fight here, uh, democratizing ComEd. And I am, I am joined with, uh, by, by, by two fantastic comrades who are my neighbors, but um, you know, might as well be <laughs> miles and miles and miles away uh, because we are, we are forced to talk over Zoom. But it's uh, uh, Sveta and Sean, uh, comrades from Chicago DSA, that's Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, how are you guys doing? It's weird time to be <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, maybe we can have a reprisal in person. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I'm uh, surviving. Uh, you know, that's uh, <laughs> like the most that any of us can do at the moment is yeah. just plugging on, you know, one Zoom call at a time. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe you guys can uh, introduce yourselves uh, and tell us uh, sort of who, who you are and how you're connected to this democratized comment campaign. Um, and then we can kind of talk about the campaign. Um, so, Sean, why don't you uh, go ahead? Cool. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Sean Estelle. I use they, them pronouns. And I've been in Chicago for uh, almost six years now. Uh, and I've been a community organizer around climate issues and other issues for a little under nine years. 
um, and uh, a DSA member, Democratic Socialist of America member, since January of 2017. Um, I, you know, joined on the day of the inauguration of, um, you know, our dear leader, um, and um, was a sort of unaffiliated anti-capitalist um, for a long time before then. Got more and more involved in DSA. Uh, I learned in 2018 that the 30-year uh, contract with uh, ComEd, the city's contract, was coming up for uh, renewal. And so I worked to start the Democratized ComEd campaign within Chicago DSA, uh, given the historic opportunity. Uh, I since uh, have taken a big step back because I ended up running for national leadership within DSA. And so I'm now serving on the National Political Committee uh, of DSA. And part of that has been about working with uh, not only the folks in Chicago DSA, but other folks across the country to really get the Green New Deal campaign off the ground and have public ownership as a key part of it. Um, so that's probably where I'll try and have some of the perspective uh, throughout this interview. Um, but I'm really grateful to be here. Awesome. Uh, and we're grateful to have you. Yeah, I, I think the show has become like, uh, all, by accident, almost entirely focused on Green New Deal stuff. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, Green New Deal and like, you know, unionizing architects. Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, listeners, if you're sick of it, uh, I don't know, send me an email or something. <laughs> Um, but, but you know that that's that's one of the things on the agenda. Uh, cool, thank you, Shot. Uh, Sveta, uh, I always do like the the James Lipton. Uh, like, <laughs> who, who is who is Sveta? <laughs> yeah, uh, my name is Sveta Sochova. I'm using her pronouns. I'm also a Chicago DSA member, as I've shared already. Um, and I work on the democracy Democratized ComEd campaign here um, as part of our um, campaign leadership team. I'm focused on political education within that. Um, and, you know, I've been a DSA member for a year and a half, almost two years now. Um, and I sort of started working on this when the municipal elections ended um, this time last year, actually, a very different year um, kind of energy last year um, yeah. in April. Um, and I was wondering what else to do now that I wasn't knocking doors um, for a socialist on city council every day. Um, and I was really compelled by this idea that we could actually implement the Green New Deal kind of policy locally. Um, and it's a drop in the bucket to the kind of bold, decisive action we need to take on a national, international scale. But it um, really feels like if we can uh, take control of this major aspect of, of our infrastructure and do that in a way that's democratic, that brings a lot of people to the table, that is um, a real strong indicator that we can then scale that up um, nationally, internationally. Uh, so I was really compelled by that. And uh, it's been exciting to see how the campaign has developed here, but it's also been really exciting to see the public power campaigns kind of um, kicking up all over the country in New York and California. And it really feels like we're at a moment when um, things could change and it could change in a way that kind of sets the dominoes falling um, to really rethink how we um, have our basic needs met. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so let, let's zoom out for a second and uh, talk to us about like, like our listeners who are, are not in Chicago might not know who Comet is. I assume that they've intuited because they're, they're smart cookies, the, that it's an electric utility, but maybe uh, you can tell us sort of who ComEd is um, and sort of what what municipalization really means as, as a kind of process here. 
um, and, and sort of what, 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 what the goal and, and sort of overall uh, trajectory of the campaign is. Yeah, um, so ComEd, um, as you know, we've said, is our, our electric utility here in the city of Chicago. Um, and one thing that we should kind of note is that ComEd is a private investor-owned utility. Um, it's regulated as a public utility, and it has a kind of monopoly access to be to deliver electricity um, to our homes and businesses here. Um, so they distribute electricity um, from the grid and get it to us so that we can get on Zoom or um, turn on our fridge or like if we have a medical condition and need a ventilator at home and we can plug that in. Um, all of those essential things that we like absolutely need. Um, and so right now um, they're owned, um, a wholly owned subsidiary of Exxon Corporation, which owns a bunch of other electric utilities, um, nuclear plants and natural gas plants. It's a major player in the energy sector um, nationally. and. That means that all of the revenues and profits from the delivery of electricity to our homes here in Chicago then go back to Exxon shareholders. Um, and it is a, a company that's tightly regulated by state regulators, but also operates at a profit and a guaranteed profit. Mm -hmm. um, so with our goal of municipalization, um, that basically means getting the city to operate the service um, as a public good, um, as opposed to as a kind of profit-driven commodity. Um, so we would like to have our own utility here in the city of Chicago, similar to how we have a water department that is municipal, although much better uh, run and more democratically, kind of with more democratic oversight. Um, but the idea being that we want to take the profit motive out of um, delivering electricity to our homes and then be able to make decisions about how we're going to rapidly decarbonize to meet the challenge of climate change, how we're going to um, make sure that like folks can afford their electricity and aren't um, having their energy shut off, that they aren't um, you know, being evicted due to unpaid electricity bills. We wanna kind of solve for those equity issues and we think that the only way we can meaningfully do that um, is by taking profit motive out of the delivery of this yeah. resource. And this is not some like harebrained socialist plot either. I, I mean, it, it might is, be that a little bit, right? Like, oh, right. Yeah, no, no, no. It is, it is a socialist, it is a, it is a socialist organizing campaign to be clear. Yeah. Um, because that's like one of the fundamental things right. that we as socialists believe in is around like decommodification and like public ownership of essential services. And we just believe that having like, uh, you know, planned economy that is democratically controlled is going to be more efficient at doing those things. But I think the really important thing is that there are plenty of examples of publicly owned utilities, um, like the second largest, the second largest city in the United States, LA has a public utility. Um, and the state of Nebraska has entirely municipally uh, and, and uh, publicly owned uh, electric uh, distribution, and I believe generation as well. Um, and so I think that's one of the most important things to remember is that like there's many different layers of bureaucracy and many different types of electric utilities, but mm -hmm. this is not some kind of like ask to create an entire new model from scratch that has mm -hmm. never been done before. Um, so yeah. 
which is so cool. I mean, it makes it such a good transitional demand because, you know, at first, like, you know, like people stop thinking, like people, people, people view municipalization, nationalization, any of these things as like a sort of impossibility under, under the kind of current status quo. But yeah, when you, when you can look and say, well, yeah, like the water department, right? Like, you know, you, the water, you, you turn on the tap and water comes out and you pay the bill. And like, you know, also like, even though it's not perfect, uh, you as a, as a, as a voter have some chance, uh, in, in sort of impacting it, uh, in a way that you don't, uh, if, if it's sort of privately controlled by a CEO. Right. And so like, um, I think that all, all of those things make it, make it super appealing as a kind of, um, uh, way to like, you know, have people work out those organizing muscles and sort of realize their, their own strength and capacity to make change. So like, that's, that's awesome. So I, I, the, the website is really interesting to the kind of democratized combat website. Um, it kind of talks about the coalition partners who we should give a shout out to. Uh, who, who are those? I don't have them pulled up in front of me, embarrassingly. Yeah, so right now our coalition partners um, on the campaign are um, the Food and Water Watch of uh, Midwest, um, 33rd World Working Families, and the University of Illinois Chicago Graduate Employee Organization. Uh, and we're working right now on growing um, that, that coalition. Um, we had a town hall a couple last week. Last week feels like six months ago, but it was actually just a week from now. Um, yeah, with a lot of other partners who sponsored that town hall, including Sunrise Movement Chicago. So we're working on growing those relationships and, and, and building that, that coalition. That's awesome. Yeah, the website is demcomed.org. Uh, for listeners to go navigate there. But there's a great FAQ section. Uh, and one of the things that sort of caught my eye is um, there's this uh, distinction made between municipalization and democratization. And so far, we've sort of been using those terms interchangeably. And, and maybe in large ways, they are interchangeable, but, but there's still a difference. So I'm, I'm curious to hear you guys uh, talk about that. It seems like it overlaps with this sort of um, is issue of uh, sort of, I don't know, municipal democracy, right? Yeah, um, I think actually the water department is a really good example to start with there, mm -hmm. something we own municipally. And um, something that's like really relevant in this time of pandemic is um, people need access to water. And Mayor Lightfoot, a couple of months ago, was a campaign promise, like temporarily suspended water shutoffs. Mm. Um, but her water department didn't also then make a plan to reconnect everybody's water supply automatically. Mm. So we actually still have folks in the city who, although you can't have your water shut off right now, were never reconnected and aren't able to wash their hands and kind of take that basic hygiene stuff that we need to protect ourselves. So the sort of space between municipalization and democratization is actually politicizing these pieces of infrastructure and getting people to understand the sort of scope um, and something like a municipal electric utility or water department has so many more pressure points where we can get together and apply pressure and make demands um, for more equitable um, access to resources. So um, I think it's that step. Like we don't just want to own it and then step back and let let it kind of run itself. We want to make this um, as a model of how we can really have meaningful input in, in how our society is structured and how our resources are provided. Um, so a good example from Los Angeles is there, they were actually able to organize and pressure um, the public electric utility to divest from um, 
natural gas and then to invest in uh, solar energy and, and more renewables in the city. Um, and they were able to do that at a rate that's like historically low um, and affordable for renewables. Um, and like that took a lot of work. Um, but it's work that's only possible once we have the levers um, of public meetings, uh, accountability, transparency, um, and a sense of ownership that really this is our energy and we have a say. And right now it's comment energy and they're very kind of graciously providing it to us and charging us back for any like energy efficiency matters or any improvements on the grid. We're paying for all of that already, but we're paying for that and guaranteeing their profit and not getting a say into like whether we need uh, like what kind of infrastructure we need. Um, and they kind of keep us intentionally in the dark about that. Um, and we want democratization to mean we understand the stakes of the decisions that are being made around these resources that we need. We have a say and we're able to continue to organize with high pressure because that's never going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that it's a, it's a really good example of why the democratic part of being a democratic socialist is like just as uh, important because um yeah there are lots of examples of public infrastructure in the energy system and otherwise that are deeply undemocratic and i think one of the arguments that is often used against public ownership campaigns in the energy sector and i would assume in other places too um is like well look at this publicly owned infrastructure that is still like really dirty and it's like you know in some ways they're like the publicly owned infrastructure like the rural electric co-ops, um, which is a model of public ownership that was created during the original New Deal, um, or the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which again is like a piece of New Deal infrastructure. That's some of the dirtiest infrastructure uh, in terms of like fossil fuel ownership and fossil fuel emissions uh, in the entire United States. And obviously that's not what like um, you know, we as eco-socialists want, um, and as democratic socialists, uh, democratic eco-socialists, we <laughs> believe that having that public ownership is going to allow us to move faster um, on actually decarbonizing um, and doing it in such a way that um, the the cost of decarbonization, like Svetsa just said, the cost of decarbonization are not going to be passed on to working class people who are not responsible um, for the like fucked up crisis that we're in, um, but rather that the cost of decarbonization are going to live with the people uh, who are responsible, like the oil executives uh, and the uh, uh, energy and utility executives yeah. as well. Um, Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super, super important to underline that sort of connection to, you know, uh, what 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 having a utility truly organized in the public interest allows as a political sort of opportunity um, in, in a way that, you know, having like as, as long as it's privatized in any sort of way, there will always be some uh, some sort of effort to appease uh, private shareholder interests, whether whether it's regulated or not. Right, and that's always going to be part of the equation, and, and I just want to remove that term from the equation altogether. And um, I think um, I'm trying to like put my hat, my like my like visioning cap on, and 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 understand like try to put myself in the shoes of someone who's maybe skeptical of this. 
And I think, um, um, you know, like you said, one, one in seven people are already served by a municipal utility I saw on, on the website. And then there's, there's all these countless examples from history and, and from the present day of uh, what's possible. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to sort of like broadcast the campaign's playbook on the radio show, but I am curious what has happened up to this point. I am, you know, because this isn't just sort of, uh, you know, some lefties sort of idly speculating on the side, right? Like stuff is happening at city council. Um, it, it's, it's real. And so, so, so sort of tell it, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. So I can say a little bit about like the work that happened in the lead up towards like publicly launching the campaign. Cause I do think that it's really important to be very explicit about how much work uh, that like took beforehand. Um, and yeah, so as I said, you know, I found out that um, the franchise agreement was expiring I previously worked at like a youth climate nonprofit that had organizations all across the country. And I became aware of and did some training on the energy system through that. And um, that included making connections with the people in Minneapolis who had started a, a municipalization campaign in like 2012 or 2013. Um, that was the Minneapolis Energy Options Campaign. Now they have an organization called Community Power uh, that people should definitely look up and look up that campaign. Uh, but basically, I had my like flags up to like find out or know when this was happening. And then I saw Carlos Rosa, our dear incumbent socialist Alderman, tweeting something uh, in 2018 about ComEd coming to city council to deliver its annual report on like, here's the, here's the microgrids that we've built. Here's like how we're best for the city, et cetera. And there was something about the franchise agreement coming due soon. Mm -hmm. And so basically I like did six months of research and like built some like folks uh, from Chicago DSA, like took some folks from the eco-socialist working group and other places. And we essentially went and we like went to the library and scanned the old franchise agreements. And we, we like talked to people who um, had gone and uh, tried to uh, be involved in the last franchise agreement fight in the eighties and people who are plugged into the current fights um, at the statewide level around passing energy legislation. Cause I think that's one of the very specific things in Illinois is that a lot of the energy around uh, energy fights uh, is happening at the statewide level because of this big comprehensive uh, Future Energy Jobs Act that was passed in 2016, and then the proposed Clean Energy Jobs Act that is still stuck in the state um, uh, legislative uh, body right now, in part because of ComEd and Exelon's um, fuckery and yeah. like, uh, I'm going to ask you guys more about later. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally, totally. Um, but basically it was about like being really, really intentional, doing a ton of research, starting to identify leaders within the organization who would want to work on this. Uh, and, uh, and then, um, having, and then putting together a campaign proposal and um, having the organization vote on whether or not to take this up as a campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really important part 
was like, does the organization want to work on this? And mm-hmm. if not, then um, like maybe it won't become a campaign because mm-hmm. it's going to take collective work. Uh, Sveta, do you want to take it from me? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of like raising my voting card at a general meeting to vote for that as a priority campaign without having any and like, oh, I didn't realize it would take up so much of my energy and time after this. Um, <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, genealogy. But what we're doing right now, I think, um, since launching publicly um, and after that really important internal organizing um, work that Sean and everybody else who was working on this earlier did um, is kind of we've got some movement in in city council. Usually, the first step of any kind of public ownership or municipalization campaign is a, a feasibility study. Um, one of the hardest questions to answer um, around, like, can we do this? Is how much will it cost? Um, how much is commons infrastructure worth? Like, the first step. Um, of municipalization is actually buying out the relevant infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, which we actually are able to do. Like state law provides for it. Um, mm-hmm. Our current contract with them allows us to give them a year notice um, and say that we're going to, to do it. It's a lot easier than in many other states mm-hmm. um, to actually form a municipal utility. Um, but the first step is a feasibility study. And in July of this year, um, Alderman Daniel Spada, another one of the six socialists on city council that really matters having those voices there to be able to speak for these things, um, introduced a resolution in city council that would, or an order um, in city council that would require the city to perform a commission of feasibility study and start to get some of those um, numbers on the table and really start the discussion. Um, That actually was never voted on. That initial order had 22 co-sponsors so we know like there's interest here and that interest might not be necessarily for full-on municipalization it might be saying we need a feasibility study as a bargaining chip for the contract mm-hmm. um, but um, there is interest and there's potential and there are people who could be moved um, mm-hmm. if we can make a compelling argument um, so that never got voted on actually because the city and the mayor's office um, and uh, fleet and facilities management which is the department um, the city department that negotiates the contract actually um, decided to go ahead with feasibility study on their own. Mm. Um, And that was a little bit, it's a good thing, right? We've got a study going. Um, But um, the concerning part about that was instead of having a public vote on the record, who said yes, who said no, it's all happening behind closed doors. Mm. So a big piece of the kind of democratized piece of ComEd, um, the ComEd campaign is like moving all of these discussions into the public eye, having more public hearings, really getting people involved um, in the decision-making process. Um, so right now, um, we've gotten some more information about the, the study. We filed Freedom Information Act requests um, around the uh, sort of agreement with the consulting firm. Um, and we have uh, gotten some more on the record information and it's been reported on. So now we're expecting that phase one feasibility study that will cover the cost of municipalization and um, commons assets um, sometime in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should be prepared in that time to kind of base build and start building pressure for municipalization so that um, once that study comes out, we can move quickly um, and capitalize on that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's important to kind of know is that our franchise agreement expires at the end of this year. And prior to us starting this work, it was going to just kind of happen quietly behind closed doors. Um, so one of the sort of victories, I think, of our work so far is to start to bring this issue into the public eye um, and have discussions about it and have stories running um, in the media about, you know, there's a really great Chicago Magazine headline from a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
Chicago without ComEd, um, which is something that is really hard to imagine because our last franchise agreement lasted for 30 years and the one prior to that lasted for 30 years. Like this isn't a discussion that comes up frequently. So we need to capitalize on this moment um, and really think about um, how we could be doing this differently so we can decarbonize in 10 years. We don't have 30 years to, to wait. Yeah, yeah. The only, the only point that I would add to Sveta there is around that like narrative shift and that paradigm shift, which I think is like such a key important part of campaigns like this, is the day that that order dropped with 22 co-sponsors um, in Chicago, which in and of itself was a huge victory. Um, in New York City, uh, Mayor de Blasio was lifting talking points from New York City DSA's campaign for public power because there had been a blackout um, like days previously, Con Ed, uh, the electric utility in, in New York City, had um, engineered a blackout uh, to happen that was only gonna affect the like black and brown working class areas of like, Brooklyn and the Bronx so so that uh, the white areas um, like gentrified areas of um, Brooklyn would not be affected by like these um, you know um, power disruptions um, that were happening and so it like you know New York City DSA again like they had been doing a lot of campaigning they had been doing a lot of preparation a lot of base building they had scheduled a town hall to happen in Astoria and it luckily that town hall um, was able to like suddenly be this like um, outlet for you know hundreds of people who were outraged and like yeah. the public advocate Jemani Williams was there and it suddenly took on this huge political importance yeah. and then de Blasio like took up talking points that New York City DSA had dropped into the media. And so within the space of like 36 hours, you had elected officials, a big set of elected officials in two of the three largest cities in the United States talking about public ownership of their electric utilities. And the, the third of the other three largest cities already has a public electric utility. <laughs> um, and so this is just like a totally game-changing moment um, in terms of like utility and electric system campaigning. It's such, a, it's such an important story to tell in that regard because like, like you, you start off with this internal organizing work and, and I've done a lot of organization building in my time with the architecture lobby, with NDSA, like, you know, you, you, you spend tons of time doing this and it can feel like, gosh, like, what, what are we, what are we doing here? Like, we're having these internal conversations, but it's so important because then, then eventually the rubber meets the road and all of a sudden it's it's zero to 60 and all of that all of that base building that you've done you see the ways that it pays off and it's funny because in in some ways it happens through sort of strategy and, and things that you can premeditate and sort of plan for like you know dialoguing with the aldermen blah 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 and then and then if you're doing your job right there's also just these crazy ripple effects that you could never anticipate like bill de blasio you know taking up taking up a talking point right like that's 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 organizing um yeah so uh you, you i'm i'm curious the the issue of numbers came up and and i know that um com ed has sort of been uh 
putting out numbers about municipalization that are wrong. And so I just want to like get that like on the buildings on air record. Uh, do, I don't know if you have that in front of you, uh, <laughs> but, but maybe you can, you can tell us about that, that, uh, the, some of the numbers games that ComEd is playing right now. And then we can sort of talk about uh, their state level corruption, <laughs> which will be a fu fun way to wrap, wrap the show up on, I think, uh, you know, because it's a, a made in Chicago moment, truly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, tell us about the numbers if, if you can. Yeah, um, so I think, you know, this is actually pretty important because uh, how much will it cost is a, a question that people right, rightfully have, um, but it's also comment number one talking point of like, this is impossible because the city will never be able to afford it. And when we have that discussion, we never think about the fact that we're already paying for every single bit of comments infrastructure. They get um, the way that we pay delivery rates um, in the city is that any investments that comment makes in infrastructure, like they can then charge us back on our bills with a profit margin. So when we have this discussion about how much will it cost, I think it's really important to first for round one, we're already paying for this. Um, we're paying for it in a slightly different mechanism through our rates instead of through our taxes, but it's coming from our money uh, and our resource. Um, and two, um, we're also missing a lot of opportunities for investments that would save us a lot of money in the future. So right now, when we think about decarbonization in the narrow sense of utility, we can think about like changing the energy mix um, in, in the grid and like regulating the utilities. They have to buy more renewable renewables and things like that. But we could also be thinking about taking some of the $200 million in profits that ComEd made in Chicago last year and expanding public transportation so that we actually have more kind of green ways of, of getting around. Uh, and we can't even have those conversations now because those kinds of um, investments and interventions don't fit within the list of things that ComEd can build infrastructure around and profit off of. Mm -hmm. um, so the big discussion now, when we first launched the campaign and had the feasibility study order, um, ComEd's governmental affairs um, person was interviewed with Daniel Lafada um, on like the evening news, um, cited $5 billion as the cost. And actually that $5 billion lines up with our internal um, kind of calculations, which are based on ComEd's and Exxon's filings, right? Um, mm. What is their infrastructure? What is the depreciation rate? Um, you know, we've kind of done the math um, and we think our numbers are pretty pretty plausible. Um, I think the feasibility study will um, kind of bear those out. Um, I can send you like written out how those numbers are calculated um, <laughs> if that would be interesting for folks to see. Um, but you know, now that we've picked up some steam, all of a sudden, ComEd is saying, actually, it's more like $10 billion, right? Um, and we don't really believe that um, in terms of like where did $5 billion worth of infrastructure just appear, um, because that infrastructure is like wires, it's meters, it's actual things that exist in the material world. Um, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that while this is happening, um, ComEd is also, they have to share this, some of their capital investment plans um, with the state regulatory bodies. And we don't have to say it in great detail, but um, their recent sort of, it looks like they're trying to make um, $5 billion of infrastructure appear um, right. in like So some, some of the things, that, yeah, well, I can like maybe by building new things, but are those things that we actually need? I see. Um, and where are they? And to whose benefit will they exist? So it's kind of, they've got a massive um, capital investment um, sort of strategy planning with billions of dollars of investment planned. Um, and it's important to know that that's not just to make our everyday like life mm -hmm. better 
and increase our access to energy, it's because that's how they make money. Um, so Exelon owns a bunch of different utilities um, in various states. And in Illinois, utilities make money based on their infrastructure investments. And so in Illinois, they're making more infrastructure investments than they are in any of their other utilities. I, see. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about this cost question as both like, yes, they cited five billion and now they're saying 10 billion and that number feels like it came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're also using um, a regulatory system that's designed, designed for their benefit to make that $10 billion of infrastructure here, make it more expensive for us to own our own energy. And we need to be asking like, why? And why are we not part of that decision-making process? And maybe that $5 billion would be better spent on like more energy efficient school buildings or more public buses and not necessarily on some small yeah. um, grid upgrades. Yeah, awesome. And so, uh, yeah, like this is also all LinkedIn. I think y'all um, talked about how, how there's sort of these statewide fights on energy um, that have been super important in sort of enabling a lot of this, uh, both like both past and present, right? Like little, little, little clauses that have been put into the laws, you know, decades ago that are, that, that this whole work hinges on, which is also like an amazing thing to think about. Um, but, but a big story that, um, kind of broke after the campaign started, right? Um, was uh, just sort of how corrupt um, sort of ComEd and Exelon's dealings with the state are uh, in terms of like kickbacks, like lobbying activity that's super shady. Like I, 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 I don't know all the details, but I remember like hearing NPR updates, you know, during my shower in the morning and just being like, what? Like this is, this is like, if you made a movie, no one would believe it. It's kind yeah. of so, so, so insane. So maybe, maybe you can give, give the highlights to the audience here. Yeah. I mean, uh... I'll just say a tiny bit, uh, and then Sveta um, would love if you have um, specific details, especially around the relationship to the city level stuff too, like the relationship between city and state level stuff, because I think it's not only at the state level, it also is at the city right. level too. And it's in part because like the Illinois Democratic Party and the Cook County Democratic Party are like deeply intertwined. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, to me, the like clear signal of like how huge this is, is that people are unironically talking about how this could bring down Mike Madigan. Yeah. Um, and if uh, listeners outside of Illinois, Mike Madigan is, is uh, the, the, the power broker in Illinois uh, state politics, especially Democratic Party state politics. Yeah, he's like the longest serving state speaker of the house in the entire country ever, um, basically. And so, you know, this this bill um, that was passed in 2016, the Future Energy Jobs Act, it was one of the only bipartisan bills that was passed during Governor Rauner's tenure. Um, and it basically was setting um, like pretty significant um, investment into clean energy. There was a really big coalition that had environmental justice organizations at the center. One of the big concessions was that it gave a bailout to uh, Exelon's nuclear plants downstate, um, but it was seen as a big victory. And so when Pritzker came into office, um, the big statewide coalition decided that they wanted to push essentially an Illinois-specific 
Green New Deal style bill called mm-hmm. the Clean Energy Jobs Act that was going to be doubling down on environmental justice provisions, um, like green job transition oriented stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it wasn't one of Pritzker's top priorities. And so it didn't make it through the initial legislative session, in part because ComEd and Exelon were spending a lot of political capital on separate bills to lock in their interest rates um, at the statewide level. And so after the legislative session ended, and I can't remember, Sveta, maybe you know, I can't remember whether or not um, these groups were in formal coalition or talks with each other at all or whether Exelon and ComEd were trying to force that to happen but basically there was like political negotiations that were happening some of which was clear some of which was not clear and then there were raids on alderman offices alderman's offices and state um, state legislators offices uh, and stories started to break about how in part, this is because of really shady lobbying happening from ComEd um, and Exelon and like campaign donations. There's also like a story about that being connected to a lobbyist um, covering up uh, sexual assault allegations. Um, it's like, yeah, it's literally like out of a fucking B movie plot. Um, and it's wild. Yeah, I think um, on the city level, uh, thanks, Sean, for kind of, it is really kind of easy to get caught up in the drama of this and um, to read about it and see how brazen it is, is um, also to get kind of overwhelmed. Um, How can this be happening? How are we letting this happen? But this is actually happening every day, not just with our electric utility. This is just how, um, you know, the relationship between politics and business um, in uh, sort of state that's set up to serve the interest of business and capital. So I think part of the drama is also taking a step back and then remembering like this is actually the system operating as designed, um, serving the interests designed to serve. Um, but at the city level, kind of this plays out in a really interesting way because there is that connection between the Cook County Democratic Party and the Democratic Party in Illinois and all of these um, kind of flows of, of money and power are not uh, geographically bounded. Um, but it's Something to keep in mind is that one of the scandals that broke um, in ComEd was actually the ties between um, the sort of City Club of Chicago, which is one of those like dramatic centers of power where um, things are negotiated. Uh, the president of the City Club actually had to step down um, while this scandal was unfolding because of the many relationships there. Um, and then Exelon's utility president um, had spoken at the city club a few weeks prior. She resigned with a $7 billion like um, kind of golden parachute, retired early, no comment, just as uh, several um, news was breaking of SEC investigations into comment financial dealings. Um, so and then we can bundle that with donations to um, the mayor, um, I think as of March, they had donated $78,000 to her reelection campaign, um, which is, you know, part and parcel of how these things work, um, but also donations to older persons. And it's important to know that um, I think the older persons who've gotten the most money from Comet and Exelon, um, you know, in the past 20 years are Ed Burke um, and George Cardenas. And Ed Cardenas is a really interesting example because he is the chair of the Environmental Protection Energy Committee um, and person who was instrumental in making sure that that city council order um, on a feasibility study did not get voted on in public. Um, And those things are not coincidental, I think. Um, But I just want to take a step back from like the 
nuts and bolts of the corruption scandal and narrative and kind of um, reiterate that even in the best, like, probably some of you know, the investigations that are coming from the federal level indicate that it's possible that everything that was happening was not above board. We'll know when those investigations conclude. But a lot of the things that they do um, to maintain their power um, are perfectly legal um, and perfectly like business as usual because of the nature of their business model, which means they need favorable regulatory um, decisions that say, yes, you can charge this kind of um, interest profit rate on your infrastructure, or you know, we don't need to review all of your investments ahead of time. We just need to make sure after the fact that they were prudent enough. Mm -hmm. um, and those kinds of things um, are really important for maintaining um, ComEd and Exelon's profitability as corporations. Um, so they will do what, what they need to do to maintain those kind of favorable environments, which includes lobbying, which includes um, hiring people, um, you know, who worked in the legislature and then now are being hired on as lobbyists. Mm -hmm. um, it includes um, kind of making donations and um, making kind of charitable gifts um, and, and granting, um, you know, the Buckingham Fountain, like every every summer when that turns on, that's a sponsored by COD kind of activity. Absolutely. Um, and that kind of good uh, public relations um, is something that we're paying for um, also. Um, and it's something that they can then write off uh, on their taxes. Um, but it's also a way of maintaining a, a presence and a capital, political capital that allows them to ensure that then when they need uh, legislation passed that like either bails out um, their nuclear plants or that ensures that they can um, continue to have the most kind of favorable rate setting uh, policies that they have that, um, that sway and are able to do that. And they're one of the most politically potent corporations in the state. Um, and that's why this campaign like is really important for energy, but it's also really important for thinking about how are political decisions made in the state overall and how can we kind of claw back some of that power and influence for ourselves for like genuine democratic processes and out and like kind of bring it out from, I don't know, I'm going to steal a mirror light, but like into the light. Um, uh, and like, <laughs> right. what, if we, what would it mean to take it seriously and for these discussions to happen actually in public as opposed to um, like being just exchanges of clout um, and influence happening um, behind closed doors. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a better place to end it than that. I think that really sums up the, the stakes and the vision uh, and, 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 and the hope. And uh, it's all happening. The organizing continues um, even in the midst of, of this. So uh, maybe you can sort of play, play us out by telling us how uh, people can get involved and where they can get more information. Yeah, I, we'd love to have you if you're interested in getting involved. Um, the way that our kind of work kind of takes place is we um, think about um, political education, we think about communications, we think about direct action um, and what that looks like in a social distancing time we're, we're figuring out. Um, and we also think about research because we've had to learn quite a bit about how these things work. Uh, so if any of those things sound interesting or you've got other ideas for how um, this kind of campaign intersects the work that you're already doing and thinking about, we'd love to talk to you. Um, Demcomed.org um, is our website. There's a link there to sign up and um, get involved. Um, you can also follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Demcomed, D-E-M-C-O-M-E-D. -E -E um, so you'll find us there. And we actually have a uh, 
general membership meeting for our campaign coming up on April 8th. Um, I can send a, a link that can yeah, go with the show notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes. Uh -huh. Yeah, we'll be on Zoom. Uh, so we'd love to, to kind of meet you there um, and we'll update on the status of the campaign, debrief the town hall we just had um, last week and, and think about where to go. And for non-Chicago listeners uh, for Buildings on Air um, and also for non-DSA uh, member uh, listeners, um, of Buildings on Air, I would also really encourage folks to check out um, what your local DSA chapter uh, is up to. Um, again, you know, DSA, I think, really has taken a leadership role in um, building public power campaigns in many different locations. Um, there are also other organizations. You can check out the Climate Justice Alliance. It's a formation of um, mostly people of color-led um, organizations that have been around much longer than uh, DSA's explosion uh, in 2015, 2016. Uh, so you can check those folks out um, as well. Um, and you know, we're doing a lot of organizing around COVID uh, and COVID response um, and um, trying to tie that to Green New Deal uh, and eco-socialist organizing work. Um, so, uh, you can, if you are a DSA member uh, and you want to join the National Eco-Socialist Working Group, uh, which is where a lot of these pieces are starting to come together, um, you can go to bit.ly slash eco-socialist, um, and that's where you can plug into the National Eco-Socialist Working Group. Um, or you can go, uh, if you're not a DSA member and you want to check things out, you can go to dsausa.org. Um, and there's a couple landing pages um, for the COVID work uh, that's happening as well as the eco-socialist um, and Green New Deal uh, work of which this public power stuff is a really key uh, component. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, Sveta, Sean, thank you guys so much. Uh, two of my favorite people to talk to in, in, in an organizing context, in a non-organizing context. And it's awesome uh, to talk with you uh, with an with an audience, so so they they can see why also. <laughs> so um, I, I I look forward to seeing you in person at some point in the future, uh, fingers crossed. Um, but until then, I'll I'll catch you next time on um, uh, in, in Zoom USA. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, so Thanks for hosting. Yeah. That was so much fun.